Hello and welcome to QAV. This is episode 501. Um, If you're brand new to the show, welcome. This is an investing podcast where I, me, myself, Cameron Riley, talk to my old mate, Tony Kynaston, very, very successful uh, private investor, probably one of the most successful in the country. If you want to know more about Tony, go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au. You can read about him there. But on this show, which we've been doing for a few years, he teaches me how he invests in Australian stocks and shares. He has a, a methodology, a system that he calls QAV, quality at value, that he's been using for 30 years uh, to get very, very good above market returns, basically double market returns on average over the last 30 years. He teaches me how he thinks and how he does that, and uh, you get to listen in. Um, I'll tell you more about how the podcast works at the end, but uh, for now, let's just get into it. Welcome back to QAV. This is episode 501, season 501, being recorded on the 12th of January, Wednesday, the 12th of January, 2022. Apart from very windy golf, uh, how are things down in Cape Shank, Tony? Good, isolated, which is what I'm liking at the moment. No Omicron. Really? Yeah, it's it's hot and windy. Well, there's Omicron around. I mean, every now and then I get an email saying someone's had it on the golf course, but I go out and do a shot once a week, and that's my only exposure to civilization. And uh, you got boosted last week. How did that go? Good. Yeah, I had. Um, Jim was sick the first days for about 24 hours and I was fine. But then the second and third days, I was just pretty washed out. So something was going on, but I was fine. Nothing sick. Had a sore arm for a while. I believe you've now been cleared to play in the Australian Open this week. <laughs> yes, that's right. I've been vaxxed. Yeah. <laughs> You're good to go. But um, I'm not going to rely on the uh, warranties of the federal government. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's great we can't go overseas at the moment because the French hate us, the Chinese hate us, and now the Serbians hate us. <laughs> and some Americans too. I was watching a, an interview that Glenn Greenwald did with uh, another top-ranked US tennis player who has chosen not to come to Australia to play in the Australian Open because he's not vaccinated and we have a uh, terrorist regime down here that he's not very comfortable associating with. So. <laughs> a terrorist regime. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Tyrannical regime, maybe. Who's that the guy, George Christensen? He was out today saying that, if well, if, if an unvaccinated player can come into the country, then we should just open the borders to all unvaccinated people. Because opening our state borders has been such a, was such a great idea. Everything's going so well. New South Wales economy is doing so well right now, I believe. <laughs> to be in WA at the moment, hey? Yes. That's the really stupid thing about it is because it's not there's no lockdowns or no government mandated lockdowns, there's no support. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the local businesses which can't get staff because they're quarantining are just going broke. And no one wants to go out anyway because of Omicron. Yeah, self-imposed lockdown, as they say. Anyway, we don't need to tell everyone what's going on. Everyone knows what's going on. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, more positive things like the shock decision by the Indonesian government to suspend some thermal coal exports to guarantee domestic supply, which, according to the ABC uh, a couple of days ago, could have a flow-on effect for Australian miners locked out of the Chinese market. I read this and thought, 
Should we be paying extra attention to our coal stocks, Tony? Well, have you read today's financial review, Cam? I did read it very early this morning. Yeah, what did it have to say? <laughs> the Indonesian government's backflipped and now allowing exports again. Oh, Indonesia. <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, the local mining industry and some of their, their neighbours who need the coal put some pressure on the Indonesian government and they, uh, they folded like a cheap suit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, well, so much for that plan then. Well, the coal price, I did check the coal price um, based on that, and uh, it has, has ticked up again, so it is uh, slowly improving. It fell off a cliff a few months ago, but it's still a, th- a buy signal, so I'm not going to take anything off the buy list. But, um, no, I don't think Indonesia is having a dramatic effect on the coal price at the moment. Well, I'll tell you what is uh, being dramatic at the moment is our stock tip from last week, no, no, when was it? Oh, a few weeks ago, 13th of December, GWR, iron ore and gold miner, I think. Is that right? Iron ore and gold? Does that sound right? I think so. Definitely iron ore, yeah. Iron ore producer with an eye on strategic minerals and advanced gold production, according to their website. Very flashy website. We recommended them. It was one of our stock tips on the 13th of December. Oh, only 67%. It was up 83% when I looked earlier. It must have come back <laughs> at some point. Right. And it was up a lot today too, up 20% today. Oh, only 5% according to Google Finance. Okay. It was up. Yeah, I think it was up and then it came back, yeah. Again, had a cursory look at it. I think what's happening is uh, I saw an announcement to say they've turned, well, they started mining again at C4, which is one of their mines. And it looks to me like they must be just a marginal producer because when the iron ore price came down, they stopped mining. And now it's sort of going back up again slightly anyway. They've, uh, they've re, re, um, commenced mining at the mine. So this happens in, um, the commodity cycle. You get marginal producers who will only really make money when the price is you know, above average. So this looks like one of those stocks and as soon as the spigot gets turned on, the share price goes up. Did you buy it when we recommended it? No, it's too small. Yeah, not too small for me, but my portfolio was oh, full. Oh, you bought it? No, no, my oh, portfolio okay. is full. I, it's, well, I couldn't buy it for my super fund anyway. But, uh, yeah, no, it's a uh, damn shame. It's up 70% in a couple of weeks. That would have been nice. But it's been good for our uh, Nevexa portfolio because we did add it to our dummy portfolio and we obviously put it out as a stock tip. So it's uh, helped our stock tip track record look uh, extra good and gave our dummy portfolio a real kick in the pants in a, in a good way, a good kick in the pants, <laughs> yeah. if there is such a thing. I'm not going to say much about Nevexa today. I just need to get my head around their reporting at the moment. Uh, have we given up on that? I think we've kind of given up trying to understand it, isn't it? It's like... I think so. Tony sent me an email just earlier saying, if you look at Nevex's reporting for, well, any period, really, since inception or the financial year, it tells us how the value of our portfolio is one figure. But if you look at the report for the last seven days, it gives us a completely different <laughs> and much lesser value of the portfolio, not growth or anything, but total value of the portfolio drops by 10%. If you look at the uh, seven-day report, we, we can't figure that out for the life of us. It could be dividends. Like one, one might just be showing us the capital growth or the invested amount in the portfolio and the other one showing that plus dividends, but I'm not sure. I haven't been able to reconcile it. 
but it's yeah, it's all not making much sense. But having said that, what did they send out? The top three movers for the week in our portfolio. So GWI was the top mover at thirty five point seven percent. KIL, our good old King Kangaroo Island Timber, which is now called Calandra or something like that, is up six point two three percent. And but we did suffer a loss with PRU, which is down four point six percent. They're the movers and shakers from the Nevexa portfolio. And I sold CGF out of our Nevexa portfolio last night because it had breached its sell line, but I haven't replaced it with anything yet. Oh, I sent you an email saying FEX. Oh, okay, good. Thanks. Yeah, so I went down the list and I think Thorn Group was the top uh, top of our buy list, but it's a Josephine at the moment. So it was the next stock, which from memory was MML. And then we had the next one, I think, and then we got to FEX after that. But if you haven't sold Challenger, I think it's actually back above its byline today, or it was um, at lunchtime when I had a look. I did, in fact, sell it yesterday. Okay. Sorry about that. That's okay. Paid FEX in. FEX. All right. Well, I will do that now. Yeah, I think it's Phoenix from memory. Phoenix Iron, another oh. iron ore company. And our stocks of the week this week were ANZ and COG. Yes, well, we've talked about COG before, but ANZ, you know, probably had ANZ, we've had, definitely had ANZ on the buy list, but I don't think we've talked about it. So I'll do a, a pulled pork on ANZ in a little bit. The other interesting thing, like it's kind of the reverse of CGF because it was on our buy list when I did the buy list on the weekend, but now it's back off again today. It's about a cent below its buy price, I think. Right. I think I did say in my report on it on Monday that it was pretty close, so people should keep an eye on it. Yeah, right. Okay. Oh, do you want to talk about ANZ now? Uh, I was just, yeah, I've got a few other things to talk about first. Okay. So I'm going to talk about the buy list. So just in case, I mean, people should check the buy list themselves. I'll do a download when they're ready. But a few of the notable moves, CLX and TBR, MTO just came off the buy list this week. CLX and TBR came off. MTO just came off. And CTP and Horizon, AZJ, came onto the buy list. So a couple of big stocks there that if people, if people need that, but certainly ones that we've mentioned before, CLX, TBR coming off, MTO Motorcycle. MTO was Motorcycle Traders, I think. CTP, Central Petroleum, and Horizon going on. So a few moves there if people are interested. The other thing is to talk about is uh, we are coming into confession season because reporting season will start officially 1st of Feb, but in earnest, you know, probably a week or two after that. So we're probably three weeks away from reporting season. So it's a good time to stay close to reading the AFR, stay on top of your alerts, because this is the kind of time when if a company comes out with a news announcement, it could change the stock price dramatically either right. way, really. So uh, it's something to watch out for. All right, stock of the week, ANZ. Never heard of them. Who are they, Tony? What, Never what, heard of what, what, what is this thing you call ANZ? <laughs> Australian New Zealand Banking Group. And everyone will know who ANZ is if you're an Australian listener or a New Zealand listener. One of the big four. A couple of things that uh, people may, may have missed if they weren't reading the Fin Review over Christmas. There is some speculation around that the, I guess, well-respected CEO, Mr Elliott, may retire in 2022. He will have been there, I think, for six or seven years by then. He was brought in, I think he may have been the CFO, Shane Elliott, uh, Shane Elliott, I think it's Shane Elliott, before taking on the CEO role, then spent most of his early tenure unraveling the prior CEO's expansion into Asia, which um, had some mixed success. So uh, he, he brought a lot of that capital back 
where it was earning a better return in the Australian franchises. And then during the uh, Hain Commission, I think probably you know, out of the CEOs of the banks probably did okay or the best in terms of, you know, he always was very quite um, humble and was listening to what the what Mr. Hain was saying rather than, um, which was not always the case with some of the bank CEOs who in some, and share, share people who, who sometimes got a bit bolshy with, um, with the Hain Royal Commission, much to their uh, detriment. I guess that's by the by. A CEO change can cause volatility in a company's share price, and, and this could all be nine months down the track, but I do raise it as probably one of the impending issues for ANZ. It can cause the share price to be volatile for a couple of reasons. If they promote from within, then chances are the people who were on the list and thought they may have got the gig may get upset and leave, which could cause some reorganisations in the management, if not the business units. If they employ someone from outside, that could have a surprise effect, good or bad, on the stock price. Uh, Most times good, but can go either way. But either way, whether they employ from within or from without, oftentimes a new CEO will spend the first sort of three months working out how to best position the company for themselves. And I'm being a bit cynical here, but I've often seen a new CEO come in and take lots of write-downs blame it on the last guy and really clean up the balance sheet so that they can put a floor under their options going forward and make sure they make the most money out of all their incentives. That's probably their only opportunity to uh, clean decks, if you like, and um, shake out the skeletons and take all the provisioning that that the um, last guy may not have wanted to because it would have affected the share price. So the share prices can often go down soon after a CEO is replaced, but not always. So just an observation and something to be aware of if you're thinking of investing in ANZ. The business itself, I mean, it's one of the big four banks. Every one of the big four banks really has a specialty, uh, like a strength compared to the others. And in ANZ's cases, there's a couple. They are the biggest New Zealand bank, which is a, a big money spinner for them. They are big in credit cards and always have been, mainly because of the Qantas Frequent Flyer program, which they've been linked to for a long time. So they're, they're a couple of strengths, and their strength is still in the Asia-Pacific region, particularly the Pacific region. So they still have uh, probably a bigger market share in certain jurisdictions overseas than um, their competitors. So they're the strengths of ANZ. I think it's coming onto our buy list now, probably because it's the cheapest of the of the big four banks. Certainly on a P ratio basis, it's the lowest of the big four. And I'll get into the numbers in a minute. But I raise this because there's been like a, I guess, a shorthand way of investing in banks on the ASX for a long time. And that's basically just to invest in the in the bank with the lowest P ratio. And uh, that way you're always kind of buying the bank with the biggest value. And as it sort of cycles up in share price and the P raises, you sell it and you buy something else with the lowest P because Big four banks are um, not a whole lot of differentiation between them. So in some respects, it doesn't matter which one you buy, but relatively it does. And and the, buying the cheapest P has always been a good sort of way to invest in the banks and, and really in the ASX in general going forward. There, there are these sort of shorthand ways that the experienced operators get to know over time, doing things like what they call pairs trade. So if you industry like banking, if you like the – if you want to buy the bank with the lowest PE, then you, you might want to short the bank with the highest PE. And so you benefit from um, that cyclical sort of re-rating of stocks. And, and the highest PE bank is Combank at the moment. And there's a question coming up later on about 
ComBank went down in the last quarter. And I think probably one of the reasons for that is because it's the highest PE of the banks. And so people do kind of trade out of the high PE bank into the low PE bank. Yeah, so that's by the by. But again, like buying listed investment companies when there's a gap to their NTA, like buying uh, the top 20 stock, which has the biggest gap between its um, current share price and its uh, IV2. They're, they're all kind of shorthand ways of investing, especially if you don't have much time to look at it. And buying the bank with the lowest P is another one of those. Anyway, that's, uh, I guess, um, background information for the numbers. And I'm doing my analysis based on a the download I did on Sunday when the price was $28.40. The buy price at that time is $28.10. But as I said, last time I had a look, it was about a, a cent or two below that. So if it doesn't turn up again, this might be a moot exercise, but still worth doing, I think, just to run through the numbers on ANZ. It'll probably come back on the buy list, I would think. The other thing to mention about the big four banks and is their yield, and ANZ is no exception. So it's currently yielding 5.06%. And uh, it's fully franked, and if you gross that up, it's 7.23%. So if you're a retiree with a million dollars and want to live off the income, putting it into ANZ means you'll, you'll pick up $72,000 a year after tax, especially if you're in a like a self-managed super fund where you're getting a full rebate for the franking credit. So the big four banks traditionally have been well supported by retirees, and it's probably still going on today, I would think, based on those numbers. To go through the numbers, ANZ is a large average daily transaction stock, as you'd expect, $134 million is traded on average every day in it, so it's so very, very big. Its QAV score is uh, 0.36, so that's also quite high, especially for a large cap stock, and uh, it'll be getting pretty close to the top of our buy list uh, with that kind of score. And a quality score of only 64%, though, and that's probably the, the area of, to focus in on. To go through the numbers, it's slightly under the consensus target, so that gets a one for us. It's a borderline star growth stock in Stock Doctor, and it's a star income stock. So both of those score 0.5 in our checklist, so it gets a score of one for those two combined. It does have strong financial health, as you'd expect, and it's been steady for a while, so that's they're both good things for our checklist. As I said before, it's the lowest of the, the PEs for the big bank. Its PE is 12 or 12 and a half. I think Westpac is just slightly higher than that at around 13, but then ComBank is up around 20. So it's, they're good. Both ANZ and Westpac are a long way behind ComBank. And I think MAB has the highest at the moment, but that's probably a bit anomalous. His PE is well over 100. So it's probably just been going through a, some write-downs, which are affecting its earnings. But I haven't looked at NAB for a while, so I can't really say. The reason why it's coming up well for us at the moment, though, is its prop cap is 1.81. So it's, um, its price to operating cash flow is 1.81, which is very cheap. So even though its quality score is only 64%, it scores well for us because of its value dimension. The current share price, however, is greater than our IV1, but it's less than our IV2. So it does score a point for that. It's trading around book value, which is very interesting for a big company like this. So net equity per share is $22.81. And book plus 30 is $29.66. And with a share price in the sort of low 28s, we can buy this for less than 30% plus book. So this would be something on the Warren Buffett radar screen if he was investing in Australia, I would think. On the negative side of things, though, the, the analysts are predicting a decrease in earnings per share of 5% next year. So that scores a minus one for us. And again, that's a prediction, so who knows how that will play out, but um, that's what they're predicting. The yield, as I said before, is good, certainly above the bank rate. It's the old uh, 
adage of investing in Australia is don't put your money in a bank, buy their stock instead because the yield is much higher than the the um, term deposit rate from the bank itself. So um, yield scores well for us. And uh, it did, as I said, it did cross over on the weekend and gets a point for a new upturn. That'll have to lose. We'll lose that point, though, if it does continue to stay below its buy line, obviously. Equity in the bank is not consistently growing, though, so it doesn't score for that. And it's not the lowest P in the last three years, so it doesn't score for that either. And obviously, it doesn't have an owner founder. The bank was founded over 100 years ago, so no score for that. So quality score is only 9 out of 14, which is not the highest, but certainly gets onto our buy list because of the um, price to operating cash flow. So that's the numbers for ANZ. A couple of other thoughts about the business itself, and, and again, this is um, getting into the the story and the issues rather than the numbers, but just for some thought starters for people who are thinking of investing, if you look at the share price graph for ANZ, it's pretty much completed its recovery from the COVID cough. And that's where all the big gains were made in the Australian banks. And uh, it's back to sort of that same trend line that was before the original COVID downturn in March a couple of years ago. And it's on a sort of gently sloping decline. So it'll be interesting to see what the share price does from here, whether it sticks to that trend or whether it does um, continue with its up upturn. And Omicron obviously may still cause it problems. I suspect with the large increases in property prices, especially home property prices in the last 12 months or so, there should be a reducing stress on the loan book for ANZ. And you would think, you know, again, who knows with COVID what comes around the corner, but you'd think that reducing stress on the loan book is always a good thing for a bank and they'll probably take lower provisions for bad and doubtful debts and potentially even start to write some of those back from their current balance sheet. So we may see some improvement from here just based on that alone. So that's that's ANZ Bank, Cam. All righty. Yeah, well, I, I just checked the blog post I did for it on Monday. I did say that it could drop back below its sell line not the buy line, but yeah, it's dropped. I, I don't know how far it is from its sell line today, but it was just above that too. So, uh, oh, okay, yeah, they're pretty close. They're both very similar at the moment in terms of price. Yeah. Just also, I made a note just to make sure that people paid attention. I also made a note in the blog post COG, our small cap stock of the week, is actually a Josephine, just barely. I think the previous month close was $1.50 and it was trading at $1.46. So I did say that. Technically, we probably wouldn't buy it until it showed us an uptick, but um, you know, people can make their own decisions about Josephine's, etc. Just trying to bring up the Bredelator and see where it is today, but the Bredelator's wigging out on me, Google Finance, etc., etc. Okay, uh, a couple of other things I just thought I'd mention to people, if you've signed up to Stock Doctor in the last uh, three or four weeks because... We announced around about the middle of last month that Stock Doctor was building a QAV filter and coming out with it. Apparently, a few of our new subscribers, club members, have contacted me and saying, well, they went ahead and signed up to Stock Doctor and then found out the filter hadn't, (laughs) the QAV filter hadn't been launched. (laughs) Stock Doctor told me it it would be ready on a certain day and then apparently it wasn't. And then Stock Doctor sent people uh, the list of the filters, but they were wrong. Stock Doctor got it wrong. I'd sent them the list and apparently they, I don't know, human error. So I apologize for anyone that happened. And for anyone who who hasn't noticed, just if you did sign up to Stock Doctor and they had the pre-built QAV filter in there, 
just go in and um, check it against the Bible's filter list. Check that the JIX classification is correct, and I think it was EPS forecast was missing from the list that they were sending to a couple of people. So just go and check that. I mean, if you've tried to use it, it wouldn't work anyway because it wouldn't be able to cut and paste into the checklist. So uh, you'll quickly find out that something is rotten in Denmark. Also, Ali asked on Facebook the other day, Tony, how often we should be updating our sell alerts in Stock Doctor. And I told her that I tend to do it at the beginning of every month just the habit I've been into since the last time you reminded me that we should do that. Oh, Cog is a dollar forty-five today, so it's still a Josephine. But I thought I'd just check with you. Uh, how often do you do your sell alerts? Yeah, I'm pretty ad hoc about it, Cam. I don't do it in a disciplined way. First of all, I only raise them if I've done a, you know, a buy list for the stocks I'm interested in, which is probably only about 20 or so on the buy list. And then they have to be within, say, 20% of their sell line, and then I'll raise a sell alert for them or a buy alert if they're getting close to their buys. And I'll I'll update those, yeah, just on an ad hoc basis, really. I don't do it in any sort of methodical way. Generally, I find over the course of a month or a little bit longer than that maybe that I've checked those 20 stocks for some other reason anyway, and I can update them then. And that's because I've read something about them in an article in the paper or they come up on one of the lists, like the top movers of a day or something like that list in the AFR, then I'll go and, I'll go and have a look at them. You're talking about buy alerts or sell alerts though? Uh, both. So for the stocks in your portfolio, again, I assume you only really bother setting an alert if they look like they might be heading in the wrong direction. Correct. I do the same thing. I mean, I'll, I'll take a quick look. If they're if they're way, way, way above their sell price, I won't worry about it. But for the ones that are, you know, I'll do it sort of monthly. Okay, cool. You got anything else you want to talk about before we get into Q&A? That's probably good advice too, Cam, to do it monthly because as the month rolls over in, in the graph, it can change the sell price as well. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm always sort of surprised when I'm going through it how not all of them have changed by a great deal, but probably a third to a half. Uh, the sell prices are a lot higher than they were the previous month, If they, particularly, you know, if they've been getting a, in a steep incline since the COVID cough or in the last six months. Actually, one that surprised me recently, I was going through looking at gold and I did the buy list on the weekend. And uh, I remember sometime last year, I, I highlighted the fact that Gold was getting close to a sell, and I think the sell price back then was about seventeen fifty, seventeen sixty US dollars an ounce, and the gold price is back up around eight, sort of high seventeens, eighteen thousand. But the sell price has dropped as well because the graphs are just, even though they're moving sideways, have moved on a number of months since then. So I think the the sell price is now about sixteen hundred US an ounce. Good. Anything else before we get into some questions? No, let's hit the questions. We only have a couple of questions this week, so it's going to be a short show. Short show is a good show. No, we can we can talk about after hours for another hour afterwards if you like. Or... <laughs> <laughs> okay. First question is from Michael. Interested in Tony's thoughts on NTD's SPP at the National Tire and 
Dishwater, uh, National <laughs> Tire Distributors, I think it is. I can't remember. What is it? NTD, National Tire Tire and Wheel Limited. I don't know why there's a D in their code. And on SPPs in general, i.e. whether to participate them in them. I, I did send Michael, uh, he asked this on Facebook, I did send him a link to something you'd said before, another show where we've talked about SPPs because it comes up. That's a share purchase plan for Folks that are new to investing, basically, as I understand it, when if you're if you own shares in a company and the company says, "Hey, we want to raise some capital. We're going to do you a special deal because you're uh, in. You're an insider. You already own stock, and we're going to offer you shares at uh, at a discounted price." Is that basically what an SPP is? Yeah, very much so. Oftentimes, the retail SPP will happen after the insiders have been asked to buy new shares. So as is the case with NTD. So the Instos, I think, bought about $9 million at the discounted price, and now the board is making that same offer to the, the retail shareholders, although they expect to raise less. They'll raise about $3 million, I think they're asking for, from retail shareholders. Right, and a retail shareholder is just somebody who's not part of a fund manager or a bank or something. Yeah, or a large shareholder. And that's probably a question we should highlight to individuals is you can get in on institutional offers if you are classed as a professional investor and that your accountant will need to sign off on that and give it to your stockbroker. And the rules currently are from memory, you've got to have an income of 250000 or more or have, I think it's $2 million in assets outside your family home. So that obviously won't suit all our listeners, but there might be some out there who aren't aware of that. And for the simple cost of getting your uh, accountant to write a letter and say, yep, that's, uh, you know, I fall into that category and you give it to your stockbroker, you will get in onto those those deals when the instos are offered first digs at these share SPPs. Does that income have to come from investing or just income more broadly? Uh, just income. So it could be like a, a wage earner earning that kind of money. And to get your accountant to write that letter, is it like getting our lawyers to write a letter when we started the show? So it's going to cost about $10,000. Is that? <laughs> Seemed to be the case with PricewaterhouseCoopers when I did it with them recently, although we moved away from using those as, as our accountants. But no, it should just be like a couple of hundred bucks. They will have done it many times before. And uh, if they're doing your tax returns, they'll know exactly what your financial profile is. So they just um, you know, pull out the template and sign it. And so the advantage then is you can get in before retail investors on these, maybe at a better better deal sometimes? Uh, it's oftentimes the same deal, but you'll get in when, like, you know, there are companies out there who don't make the same offer to retail shareholders, like, you know, for whatever reason. And like during things like the COVID cough and the GFC, boards are under pressure to act quickly. And so they, they might just literally put out, a notice on Friday saying we want people to and take up new shares, so we need to raise capital to repair our balance sheet. And you know, by Monday it's closed. So you get in on those kinds of deals, and you also capital raising is probably the main one. But sometimes, yeah, no cap is another form. Of, I'm going to say another thing about capital raising, but yeah. So basically, if you need to raise capital from a retail shareholder, you have to go out with a prospectus. And we talked about cleansing notices last week, which is a short form prospectus, which could be the case in some instances. I haven't looked into the NTD share purchase plan in detail, but it probably does have some form of prospectus behind it. And that's one of the reasons why companies can shy away from doing it because it's um, it's a cost. It's a legal cost to 
bullish prospectus together to raise less money from the retail shareholders than they could be raising from the insto and sophisticated investors' shareholders. So there's that. There's um, oftentimes, if you get onto that kind of list, you might just get a phone call from the share broker saying, uh, you know, so-and-so is selling a block of trade. Are you interested in buying someone, putting together, you know, a list of people who want to um, to bid for it? So, yeah, you're starting to play more in the fund manager world than you are in the retail world. Right. And so do you have any particular thoughts on the NTD SPP? <laughs> Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have on the free episode. So uh, if you're brand new, we do a free episode and a premium episode for our QAV club members every week. Free episode goes for roughly half an hour. The club episode usually goes for another half an hour or sometimes an hour. And we get into a lot of uh, listener questions in that section about how Tony thinks about this issue and that. Uh, If you want to check out QAV Club, go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au and uh, sign up for the two-week free trial. You'll figure it out once you get to the website. It's not that hard. Get access to a bunch of other tools like our uh, checklist and and the Getting Started Guide, which is sort of the Bible on how to do QAV and our private uh, forum where we all get to chat about what's going on in the market, etc., etc. You also get our full buy list each week that we put out every Monday, which usually has about the, the top 100 stocks that we've assessed for the week, large cap and small cap. Anyway, check it out. Um, with that, good luck with your investing and uh, keep listening. Stay fully invested. That's Tony's advice. Whether the market's going up or down, he says to uh, always stay invested because you never know when things are going to turn around. Good luck. Uh, take care. Stay safe out there. We'll be back next week. The QAV podcast is a production of Space. Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217182. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Mm-hmm.